which yeah, but, 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 but Samuel Johnson fucked up the spelling. He's entirely yeah. responsible. So we should apologize. I apologize on behalf of the, the whole of British people for Samuel Johnson. It's Friday, November the 4th, or for UK listeners, burn a Catholic Eve, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darroch, Dutch News Contributing Editor and COVID Shooting Gallery Survivor, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Fantasy White Hat Cyber Hacker. Do you think Jacob Rees-Mark uh, dates his letters today with Bernard Catholic Eve? He probably does, yeah, knowing yeah, him. I think yeah, so yeah. It's because tomorrow is bonfire night when we celebrate the um, surviving, the fact that Parliament survived the gunpowder plot. Um, ah, yeah. Even though I think a lot of people in the UK these days would be quite happy to revert, <laughs> to, to, have, to have another go. Um, or in fact, actually, I think Guy Fawkes these days were just taking a look at Parliament and thinking they're doing such a good job of burning themselves down that I don't need to light the gun powder anymore i'll just go home and like the bar- have a barbecue so um it's uh it turns out that someone calculated this once that uh if guy fox would have succeeded uh, with this plot yeah. uh it would have in terms of uh uh you know explosives uh yeah. it would have been the largest terroristic uh, attack ever yeah um uh, in the history uh including today so um yeah it, even bigger than 9 11 yeah yeah it would have been spectacular yeah, um, <laughs> to yeah. say the least. There would there would have been some fireworks. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Um, moving back to uh, the Netherlands, I think. Yes. Um, Gordon, you are a shooting gallery survivor. Uh, does this mean that you are a member of the Russian imperial family? Or <laughs> uh, no, th- th- this is to do. I-, I had my COVID jab this uh, uh, this week, uh, as did you, I think, and we we yeah. both went to the same place, which I wasn't aware of, which is a former hospital, which I think actually should be named the Hugo de Jonge Memorial Hospital because um, <laughs> it's the place where he famously uh, launched. Was it the first? Was it the first COVID oh. jab or the first? He, he did a protocol, you know, uh, having said that he would he wasn't interested in symbolic pricks he then had yeah. one of his most symbolic uh, pricks in, of the whole pandemic at that hospital um, i never knew that that was this this uh, this location so location, i have been to yeah. to hollowed ground uh, indeed yes if week, you have uh, walked in the same carpet that has been uh, you know honored by hugo de jong's shoes we'll have to, uh, in, in, that, that in, in not a fa- in <laughs> in, a, in a very unsymbolic way yeah. um Okay, yeah, and but you had a quite you know, it's quite a different experience than me, I think, right? Yeah, I think you, you had the kind of the the regular uh, sort of um, you know um, five star treatment uh, where you, know, <laughs> you you go into you give your name at the desk and you go into a little cubicle and they give you a jab. I had uh, more the kind of the the, the, the plebs version or the or the kind of uh, the slave gallery version where basically literally or it was it was kind of like being in a Dutch birthday party because what happened was we all just sat around in a circle in a waiting room. There were about about seven eight, eight to ten people and we just sat there and a nurse came round with a trolley and I thought are we, when are we going to go into cubicles and it turns out we didn't, the first person just in, uh, sitting at the far end of the um, of the row um, rolled down his sleeve and she, she took a, um, a needle off the trolley and uh, injected and, and, and uh, gave him the injection there and then and just went around the whole circle and literally in about two minutes flat she'd injected everybody but just like there was no privacy whatsoever, you just sat there you rolled down your sleeve um, you got your injection and then you walked away it was quite bizarre, it wasn't what I expected 
basically. <laughs> no. um, I just wonder if this was some reserved like Brexiteers, Brexit survivors, or something. You know, it's just like um, it, it was very strange. Yeah, a third class uh, experience. It was definitely for, kind for of a third, third class yeah. injection. Yeah, yeah. Wow, it was very yeah, quick. No. It was very efficient, but it's just like I thought. Like uh, it wasn't what I expected, <laughs> really. And it it just sounds like you have been uh, subjected to some sort of experimentation or something as as, as a vaccination pilot. Uh, yeah. it, have I'm you been listening to David Icke's uh, broadcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you you will turn into a reptile now. Yeah, you'll be, you'll be so, called, uh, yeah, you'll be calling it gen therapy next. Gene uh, therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, huh. No, yeah, I just went to a cubicle and got my jab and then yeah. I had to go to the waiting room uh, and I noticed that it was quite a nice building, actually, but I, th I think it's uh, no longer in use, the, the, the Red Cross Hospital. No, right? it was originally the no. Red Cross Hospital and then it was a children's hospital for a while. It was a Union mm. Hospital. I went there once before, well, before COVID, when I fell off my bike. And um, I had, on uh, <laughs> a very cold February morning, and because it was freezing cold, uh, there were no ambulances to take me to the nearest, uh, to take me away. So I had to walk to the nearest hospital, which was the Children's Hospital at um, uh, uh -huh. the Roy Kausman um, uh, building. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so and, and, and then they gave me a tetanus injection because I'd hit my head and uh, I was bleeding. Um, and then they gave me a nice kind of sort of uh, uh, um, like children's sticking plaster in the shower. <laughs> I think it's a giraffe. I'm not absolutely sure, but it was all just a bit surreal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now another surreal experience. Two in surreal this, experiences uh, in that hospital. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Next time you go there, you will probably see Hugo de Jonge pole dancing or something. Or turning into a lizard, maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The lizard references are down to the fact that uh, we will very briefly mention this, but it is big news today on Friday because David Icke has been banned from not just the Netherlands but the whole Schengen zone, hasn't he? Because ah. uh, he was due to give a talk in. Amsterdam on Sunday and we said we weren't going to mention it but then there's been a whole lot of effort about it because he's been banned and called a terrorist by the IND um, you can catch up about it on, uh, on reputable news sources or Dutch news but uh, basically this, <laughs> this uh, conspiracy theorist and basically long-term undiagnosed mental health patient is not allowed in the in the Netherlands uh, this weekend and F.A. Day who invited him are, are very upset yeah and it's quite quite amusing that people who keep shouting Grenze dicht as a solution to every problem are annoyed <laughs> that the borders have indeed been shut for, for their favourite uh, hate preacher. But let's move on to, to to another despicable character who is the subject of your um uh, your job title this week, Paul. Yeah, because uh, I'm sure we mentioned her before, Rian van Rijbroek. Um, I'm sure we did. Yeah, she uh, she she became yeah I think world famous in the Netherlands. Uh, no when notorious, she, uh, I think, is the best word here. Notorious, <laughs> yeah. When she uh, uh, when she appeared on Nieuwsuur a uh, couple of years ago, three years ago or something. I think so, yeah. um, she was uh, invited as a cyber expert, but as soon as she opened her mouth, it turned out that she actually wasn't, and that she was just. Uh, talking rubbish, basically. Um, uh, um, um, that was a major error by by Newsur. They apologized for that. Um, but since then, uh, Rian van Rijbroek uh, has become a household name. I think uh, every time someone messes up online or digitally or uh, technically with a the computer, um, um, they get called <laughs> Rian van Rijbroek. Yeah. Um, she does believe, however, that she is a cyber expert and uh, a cybersecurity expert. Uh, she has written a book about it, and uh, yeah, she. Uh, she She's involved in all sorts of activities, uh, but um, uh, the, the most worrying activity she's involved with is that she has a, a relationship with a CEO of Centis, that is a 
um, a very important ICT company that's responsible for uh, all sorts of security systems. For example, the uh, the Nederlandse Bank, that's the the central bank of the mm-hmm. Netherlands. So very important company. Um, but yeah, he seems to be under her spell. Um, he seems to be. Um, yeah, really captivated by her. And uh, I believe it is Dubansia who had made uh, a podcast series about Rian van Rijbroek. It's uh, worth listening to if you speak Dutch. Yeah. Um, um, or, or perhaps a, a, a nice uh, exercise to learn the language. Who knows? Uh, if you, you, if you, you learn some very the... kind of uh, yeah, um, unusual Dutch words, I think. Uh, sort of lots of yeah. kind of te- techno babble, basically. <laughs> techno babble. Fa- fa- yeah. Fake technical terms. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Rian van Rijbroek, she, she earned the nickname. Uh, Cyber charlatan, which I think <laughs> yeah. is uh, one of the best uh, best uh, words uh, anyone has ever come up with. Yeah. Um, yeah, but she's basically a yeah cyber Rasputin, right? She uh, mm-hmm. she is, is sort of um, uh, is responsible for all sorts of very bad uh, decisions by the CEO of Centis. Mm-hmm. But but there's been I mean it's been in the news because there's been a series of um, court hearings, right? So uh, administrative court hearings about about Centis, and she turned up. Uh, at the uh, hand in hand with uh, Gerard Sandering is the guy's name. Oh yeah, Gerard yeah. Sandering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there was indeed a court case because the the I believe the ondernemers raad. Yeah, the the the, the, uh, the entrepreneurial council. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It had demanded that Sandering would be removed from the from the board of directors of this company and his other companies as well. Um, yeah, because he he he's very badly influenced by her. Uh, so this court case was yesterday, I believe, or the day before, and um, um, uh, he showed up with Rian van Rijbroek hand in hand, and that was the first time she was seen uh, in public since that um, uh, notorious news appearance. Mm. Um, um, and yeah, um, she she was also she uh, uh, was also given the word in this court case. Uh, there are a lot of um, uh, court reporters who live tweeted uh, that case. And mm. yeah, uh, uh, as you said, um, uh, how do you, how did you call it? Cyber cyber babble, techno babble. Yeah, yeah, techno babble. Yeah, that's she repeated that as well. And we were in phase four of yeah some something. Yeah, she got involved with with the FBI. I don't know. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, uh, so that's that's a, that's, a, that's a good uh, rabbit hole for people to disappear down. Uh, this uh, after listening so, yeah. to this podcast, yeah, find out yeah. all about Rian from the the, the the bizarre cyber world of uh, uh, the bizarre virtual reality of uh, Rian von Reiburg. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and that brings us to the uh, OPEF of the week. I think this is uh, a good contender of, 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 of winning the OPEF of the Year award. It's uh, a strong one, definitely. Yeah. 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 Supermarket chain Jumbo is responsible for this week's OPEF. Uh, with the World Championship around the corner, supermarkets in the Netherlands are traditionally embroiled in an orange merchandise war. They're fighting uh, to create the biggest hype among football fans. And uh, Jumbo was the first supermarket to launch its orange advertisement campaign uh, this year. Um, fans can get an orange sweater vest after buying enough groceries. Uh, that uh, is, of course, a reference to the fact that the World Championship is now in the winter yeah. instead of the summer because, uh, yeah, someone decided to play in the desert. 
Um, the special uh, commercial, uh, which was part of the advertisement campaign, featured artists such as Gerard Joling, uh, rapper Donny, and uh, also singer Jan Smit. And it was first aired on television on uh, Tuesday, and it immediately caused ophef because the singers could be seen partying on a construction site and dancing the conga with construction workers. Mm. People on the internet said showing dancing construction workers was outrageous given the fact that uh, an estimated six and a half thousand workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka uh, have died in Qatar during the construction of the stadiums needed to play the World Cup matches. Uh, human rights organizations joined in criticizing the supermarket for its decision and the upheft became so large that Jumbo decided to pull the ad the next day. Uh, the decision to produce an Arthur commercial is especially strange given that Jumbo has said last month that it was fully aware of the sensitivities around the World Cup in Qatar and it had promised to make careful considerations on how to tap into the orange fever this year, uh, something they have filled dramatically to do quite quite spectacularly yeah spectacularly, yeah and this is the thing yeah. is the fact that you know as you say this is a decision to produce and air the commercial a commercial is not a spontaneous thing right you have to plan no. it you have to script it you have to find higher actors there's a budget you know, it takes it goes through all kinds of committees and it seems that at no point in this whole drawn out process did anyone sort of put their hand up and say that this might kind of go the, the, the construction workers dancing might not strike the right tone possibly yeah, I really don't understand how they could have missed this. Um, yeah. uh, th- there were a couple of reactions on the internet that said, oh, I, I, I don't connect construction workers to the Qatar World Cup. Uh, well, have you been paying attention to yeah. the news the past five years or so? Um, probably not then, if that's not the case. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, it's... Um, it is it's it's uh, also i can't find any any footage of the of the commercial anywhere on the internet i should have recorded it yeah uh, because it was uh, uh, inevitable that they would pull it uh, at some point um but yeah it was uh, it was uh, pretty terrible yeah and also and still got, and there's a whole you know as with these upper kinds of campaigns it's not just the tv ad they also got like all kinds of like sort of cutouts of construction workers around the stores and they, they, they still haven't taken those down from my local limbo last time ah, so okay uh, i'm sure they will in the next few days but uh, yeah it's just been uh, uh, yeah, an absolute disaster for them and then you must seem to have a, a history of a World Cup related off-pay because I seem to remember around the European Championships uh, like what, 18 months ago um, they had no actually it was last year wasn't it the, 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 because they weren't the official sponsor they had all kinds of like orange socks and orange uh, m- uh, memorabilia and uh, Albert Hein who were the official com- sponsor complained that Jumbo were kind of hijacking the tournament or sort of piggybacking on their um uh yeah uh on 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 their official sponsorship deal that they paid for ah oh yeah because yeah. yeah 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 i can't remember the details of it but it was no. uh, this op wasn't wasn't nearly as bad as, it was nothing uh, as like this it, no that was like a warm-up <laughs> op for this one yeah. it's like a, yeah yeah they thought this time this year we're going to really go for it we're going to completely outrage everybody and there was uh, more upheaval uh, around Qatar. I'm not sure if we if we, if we're going to cover this in the sports sections, but if so, then you should just cut me off. Uh, a, a hundred or so fans uh, get a paid 
um, uh, uh, trip to Qatar to visit uh, uh, the, the, the matches played by the by the Orange team, yep. um, and including a number of influencers and also a number of very famous uh, football fans. Uh, uh, for example, um, the Titan Man, yes. um, <laughs> <laughs> the the man with uh, with the fake uh, fake boobs, the there, fake which booby, always yeah. <laughs> yeah. who's uh, who's a regular sight um, uh, in the stadiums whenever uh, Oranje plays. Yeah. Uh, he um, uh, is making use of this offer by Qatar to um, uh, sell his soul, basically, mm-hmm. and um, uh, go to Qatar for free. Um, on the other hand, there is also another famous fan. That's the um, uh, f- the the Orange Indian. Yeah. Um, he uh, refused to go. He remains in the Netherlands uh, because man. of the. Yeah, hmm? he, he he's from Emmen. The, uh, the oh, the is Indian, he? Indian guy. Yeah, he's famous. He's famous in Deventer. Uh-huh. So glad to hear that Deventer's finest is um, yeah uh, has has not um, yeah has taken the moral high ground. Think, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. and then there is also the Orange General, but it turns out he died. Oh, <laughs> I thought, what is he going to do? So I googled and him. Another, he, yeah, yeah. An, another general that's died. This seems to be happening a lot this year. <laughs> yeah, although mostly, mostly in mostly in Ukraine, but this uh, this was a general who died in the Netherlands, right? So, yeah, yeah. The, the, but, uh, I think the thing with this is, is not just that they were given um, that they had their trips to Qatar and their accommodation paid for, uh, but the fact they're actually asked to sign contracts where they were required to um, be present in public in their orange shirts and take part in five-a-side kickabouts, but also also, like, report anyone who was uh, tweeting negative things about the tournament. Oh, really? Yeah, there's, yeah. Uh, they actually was asked to be to spy on their colleagues in the in, 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 in uh, among the orange fans. So anybody who said something bad about Qatar or slavery or uh, or dead construction workers uh, would then be reported to the Qatari authorities. That that, that was part of the deal. That uh, so that was what you had to do to to earn your um, uh, earn your free flight. What a good idea it was to um, uh, have Qatar World host this uh, World Championship. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the previous World Cup was in Russia. They were both awarded at the same time. Yes, I'm starting to think there might that all all might not be well at FIFA, but perhaps that's just me. This week, another kind of worms bursts open in the long-running nitrogen saga. The Dutch government is finally going to get round to apologising for slavery after 130 years, and that's also the length of time you'll be waiting for a seat on a train under the NS's new timetable. (laughs) The Netherlands enjoys some unusual sporting success and finds a creative and colourful way to deal with its wolf problem. It's back to the drawing board on the sticky issue of nitrogen pollution after the Council of State this week struck out the government's revised regulations for the construction industry. Regular listeners will remember that the nitrogen crisis began in 2019 when the country's highest administrative court outlawed its permit regime for construction projects. This was also the starting point for the farmers' protests because ammonia from livestock farming is the biggest source of nitrogen compound emissions in the Netherlands, but we'll come back to that another time. Under the old rules, construction firms could offset their emissions against the future benefits of having more sustainable buildings, but the Council of State said that was in breach of European rules that required it to limit emissions in order to protect a network of designated conservation areas known as Natura 2000 zones. The government had a rethink and came up with a new temporary rules, and this time builders were allowed to discount any emissions that were generated during construction because they were only temporary. 
So the pressure group mobilisation for the environment took them to court again and they won again, to nobody's surprise, frankly. Um, the case revolved around a project called Portos that would have allowed companies like Shell and Exxon to store carbon dioxide beneath the sea near Rotterdam. The court rejected the government's reasoning. They said every building project needed to include a detailed breakdown of its emissions to show it wasn't exceeding the statutory limits. Bauand Nederland, the construction industry's lobby group, said the effect of the ruling was dramatic and would lead to huge delays for house hunters, the transition to green energy and the economy in general, at a time when Hugo de Jonge has committed to building 900,000 new homes by 2030. Yeah, the irony here is that uh, all sorts of projects that uh, are meant to uh, make the Netherlands more sustainable in a number of ways uh, will also be affected and will also be put on hold. So I think I um, uh, I worry that um, you know uh, 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 down the line um, uh, this is more harmful for the environment than uh, than it would be if uh, if if this would be uh, allowed to continue. Been allowed to carry on. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, Which, yeah, another blow for the cabinet. Uh, yeah. What was their reaction? Well, Energy Minister Robbie Essen just uh, made exactly that point you just made, that it's going to hold up uh, renewable energy projects like wind farms because they all have to uh, basically sort of re- reassess and get you know new permits in and uh, it, it's all going to get snarled up. But basically the, the government, you know, when they had the original decisions, has basically sort of it, it's dragged its feet, it's tried to come up with kind of half measures, get out clauses instead of tackling the root of the problem and here we are. The Minister for Nitrogen, Christiana van der Waal, said the ruling was a setback, um, but also not unexpected. She said, quote, it means we really do have to emit less nitrogen and restore nature, which I thought was quite a remarkable uh, quote, like as if they'd just been pretending to do it up until now. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and who could Jonge? There he is again. He said uh, building would now be more complicated in parts of the Netherlands that are closer to nature reserves. Yes, because they actually have to uphold the rules this time rather than kind of find creative ways around them. Um, so basically what they did I think here was yet again come up with like a gedoogbeleid for stickstuff right they said you can you can emit nitrogen as long as it's just during construction even though you know the environment doesn't really make that distinction um, so yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, he said it, I have to say that um, just looking at how much nitrogen the construction industry admits uh, it's like 0.3% of everything that uh, that we have in the netherlands yeah um it's so little then this is this court ruling is very disproportionate i think um um uh, also um yeah what they used to do was only uh, take into account the nitrogen emission in the uh, use uh, usage phase of of a building project of a building whatever mm-hmm. and not in, during the building phase um but now um i don't think it will mean that building projects will be cancelled en masse or anything because um uh, if they emitted too much uh, nitrogen in the in the in the usage phase then they wouldn't be allowed to be constructed anyway yeah uh, it just means that there will be a lot of delays because they have to uh, calculate the emissions uh, in in the building phase uh, now and uh, but yeah the, the the real bottleneck is that we just simply do not have the people enough people to calculate this for every building project yeah. as well as um, at the municipalities and the provi- provinces uh, we, we don't have the, the 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 staff the public servants who who can um, uh, uh, assess these uh, these permits so that's the real bo- bottleneck now I don't think this ruling will lead to 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 canceled building projects it just hmm. uh, will be delayed um, uh, very much because yeah we don't do not have the people to assess it uh, assess yeah. these nitrogen emissions unfortunately yeah. no you need even more you need even more bureaucrats and even more 
for um, inspectors, basically. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, site and, uh, site surveyors. Yeah. And if you take into account that only, yeah, as I said, 0.3% of the nitrogen emissions are caused by the building industry. Yeah. Yeah, then I, I think this, uh, this, uh, these, uh, yeah, years and years of delays uh, is a little bit disproportionate. Yeah. Um, we should talk, I think, about the activist who brought the case. Yes. Um, because that group is called Mobilization for the Environment, but I think it's only a one-man horse show, isn't it? Uh, well, I mean, certainly there's one guy who is like, the public face of the um, uh, of the group, which is uh, Johan Vollenbroek. Um, and uh, yeah, he was in a pretty unapologetic mood, as uh, you might expect for a guy who's been kind of uh, had his day in court. He told NSA it doesn't feel like a victory, uh, although uh, I'm in the uh, newspapers talking about it. Um, it's just a shame that we've had to spend a year and a half taking this through the courts when prominent lawyers said from the start the exemption for building firms was unsound. And he went on to accuse ministers of lacking the backbone to take on the farming lobby. He said, quote, as soon as they see one tractor on the motorway, the cabinet starts quivering. So mm. some fairly strong well, language from him. And yeah. I mean, again, it's like if they just dealt with um, the, the, the problem with livestock farming effectively in the first place, we probably wouldn't be here right now. Right. Because as you say, the actual effect for the building uh, trade is not huge um and if they'd cut ammonia emissions from farms sooner then you know the, the fact that the building trade has this uh, slight contribution to ammonia to, to, to nitrogen oxide pollution wouldn't be would be neither here nor there yeah it's only because we're so far over the limits in general that these uh, you know, these activists can bring these cases requiring everybody to cut their their emissions effectively yeah exactly yeah. and it should be note it should be noted that um uh, mobilization for the environment and johan Voldenbroek were also responsible for the court case um uh, in 2019 yeah. uh, you know when the um, uh, the government's uh, nitrogen pollution uh, policy was uh, was scrapped yeah. by the council of state yeah um, and but also, I mean, uh, the one one point that he makes, I think, as well, which I think is important, is that he said that I mean, the, the, the real problem is not so much the construction industry, the, the actual act of construction, but what's being built, which is mainly the mega stalls, the, the huge sheds, the huge cattle sheds that are being built. And uh, he said that that's the thing they really want to stop. And the government's made the decision to kind of throw in the permits for cattle sheds and all other kind of types of construction, like housing projects, like new suburbs, motorways, uh, airports, and so on. Just have it all under one regime. And he said our, our, our proposal was that you separate out the cattle to cattle sheds and tackle those because they that is really a huge source of pollution the fact that yeah. you keep these cattle and you know, these large numbers of cattle the fact that you build these sheds is there to facilitate even more livestock where actually you should be cutting back on that if you cut back on the sheds you also cut back on the cattle farming because the government basically sees it all as one big construction project that was why he took them to court over the entire permits regime the irony here is, of course, that the demolition of these mega sheds yes. will also be delayed. Yes, um, <laughs> and it will also also generate more more nitrogen pollution. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and if we mention Hugo de Jonge, we should also mention the RFEM uh, because yes. they fucked up again, <laughs> didn't they? They did. Yes, yes. The RFEM had to walk through the dust, to use that uh, Dutch expression, or don yeah. sackcloth and sackcloth and ashes, um, because uh, yeah, indeed, this they, they, they've managed to screw up their figures uh, yet again, and this time uh, they admitted that um, because of their miscalculations, several pig and poultry farms are wrongly included in the list of the top 100 biggest ammonia polluters in the Netherlands, uh, which yeah, sounds like a, a really grim. Evil 
even grimmer version of the top 2,000. Um, <laughs> so the government uses this list to identify which farmers uh, should uh, stop work or scale back their operations in order to meet the, its emissions targets. It has a list of kind of 600 peak belusters or you know, sort of major polluters. Um, the RFEM confirmed it had miscalculated after the mistakes were exposed by freedom of information requests, uh, which is never a good look. Shaq <laughs> uh, van der Tuck, the chair of Farmers Lobby Group LTO, said it was embarrassing and not without consequences, while Nitrogen Minister Christiana van der Waal said she deeply regretted the turn of events. She said, quote, As minister, I should be able to trust information from independent scientific institutes such as the AFEM, but in this case, the trust was misplaced. Yeah, the number one of this uh, dreadful top 4,000 list is the yeah. Sultans of Swines, I think. <laughs> um, Very good. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, uh, I, I, was, uh, I, I read about this, uh, uh, this fuck-up, and it turns out that they used the, um, the average emis- emissions um, in their individual calculations instead of using the actual um uh, individual emissions right. by uh by by uh, megastall type and stuff like that so okay. that was an error um but yeah it's uh it's it's a little bit awkward that they only found that out after this freedom of information request uh, the problem is uh, the RVM said is that um uh, because it is uh sensitive uh, information they cannot um uh, publish that uh, to the public um, 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 because you know it involves information of how large a farm is, how many animals they have, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, 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 but uh, under the Freedom of Information uh, uh, Act request, they they were forced to do that, and mm-hmm. then only these individual farms that didn't, you know, they they looked at the numbers and they said, well, we cannot possibly emit so much because we have all sorts of um, measures in place that uh, that prevents that uh, uh, this number of happening. And uh, when they requested this uh, this information, they found out that they had used uh, the RVM had used the average emission instead of the individual ones, and that right. was uh, yeah how the the error was uh, was uh, was uh, discovered. Yeah. So yeah, not a good look. Uh, and also no, not a good it, look. Yeah, um, and it does kind of feed back to the objection you always hear from uh, people like Caroline from the Plus, who said that uh, that the, the emissions are not being measured, which isn't true. But um, yeah, when you find out that they are kind of using average figures rather than specific figures, it sort of lends weight to that argument, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. And yeah, uh, yeah it also, um, uh, of course, feeds into all sorts of arguments in the future that we will see that uh, you know if they make a, a mistake like that, why don't why shouldn't they have made a mistake in another calculation or something mm-hmm. else? So yeah, it's uh, it's not a good look and uh, and a bad sign for the uh, for the um, uh, uh, reputation of the RVM, yeah, uh, especially in such a sensitive uh, dossier as the as the nitrogen um, uh, uh, um, uh, story is. Yeah, so much uh, news and developments uh, of stories we covered earlier happened this week that we now have a sort of potpourri of unrelated news items. Um, mm. And uh, we begin, I think, with uh, with the Maurits House because a Belgian climate activist who glued himself to Johannes Vermeer's painting Girl with a Pearl Earring last week in The Hague has been sentenced to two months of jail, of which one is on probation. He's been sentenced for damaging property. A second activist who filmed the stunt got the same sentence, and a third 
Gothic man who glued his hand next to the world-famous painting and gave the speech didn't agree with the uh, super-fast Speedy Gonzalez court hearing, and he will go on a uh, regular trial, but that will happen uh, later. Mm. Um, the painting was unscathed in the attack, but a back panel, the glass, and part of the frame were slightly damaged, with repairs uh, estimated at 2,000 euros. The judge called the stunt shocking, saying that potential damage to Vermeer's masterpiece would be unacceptable, but he... But the suspects said they knew the painting was behind protective glass. The two-month sentence have been less than the prosecutor demanded, but the two had to go into custody immediately rather than wait for an impending appeal because the judge feared they would offend again. The sentence sparked outrage by people who felt it was disproportionate, especially because protesting farmers often go unpunished for breaking laws. Junior Culture Minister Gunai Uslu has called uh, on the demonstrators to leave cultural heritage alone, saying that attacking them is not the right way to protest. Hmm. I have to say, I mean, two months in prison, or even just a month in prison, for, for filming the protest, that does seem pretty, pretty harsh, pretty draconian. It's like, uh, yeah, and when you say yeah. the, the, the damage was 2,000 euros... To the planet. I mean, it was mainly, and if anything, I think it sort of uh, uh, makes the uh, protest seem seem more legitimate. If anything, uh, no, 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 it doesn't. No, <laughs> it should just leave the Maritz house alone. I mean, if they go I'd, to Museum Vorlinde, then I would be fine with <laughs> all the damages they do. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, leave the Maritz house uh, alone. Yeah, and um, there, there, there were also uh, activists um, uh, interrupted a, uh, a Verdi concert as well this, uh, yeah, this week yeah, as well. So um, there's been a lot of uh, cultural cultural vandalism, if you like, uh, th- 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 this week. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the uh, yeah. Concertgebouw in uh, in Amsterdam, uh, yeah. there was a, a, a yeah. A, a great video of this uh, this protester standing up in the middle of this concert and giving a speech and it was very fun to see how the very posh people in in the audience <laughs> um, uh, all of a sudden started to yell and swear yeah. at the guy yeah, so, as yeah, if so he were st- at the docks of of, of Southampton exactly yeah so um, to, to stand up and uh, <laughs> so push him out the room like so people in bow ties and tuxes like sort of <laughs> violently manhandling a guy it's kind of like a scene out of uh, the Kingsman or something isn't it <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah yeah and um yeah it was um it was uh, fascinating to see how, yeah. Um, yeah, all sorts of manners go out of the room when uh, when someone interrupts your hobby. Mm. Um, the irony was that uh, this protester was wearing um, uh, uh, pearl um, uh, jewelry. Did you ah. see that? No, no I yeah, didn't. I, no. Thought, yeah. I thought it was a nice gesture to to the girl with the old pearl. Uh, oh yes, yeah. Earring, yeah. Because pearl earring, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and we remain in court because the court in Amsterdam has decided that the court case against the two men who are accused of the murder of crime reporter Peter de Vries has to be redone. The prosecutor demanded life in prison for gunman Delano G and his driver Camille E, but while the court was working on its verdict, new witnesses came forward, which led to new arrests. Usually new information can be included in the verdict, but one of the judges retired recently, and a change of the composition of the team of judges is only allowed if the public prosecutor and the defense agree, but the lawyers of the suspects insisted that the case should be resubmitted. Uh, they have, of course, nothing to lose if they indeed get a life in prison. So, uh, mm. yeah, very logical decision by them. Um, the court said it understood the reopening is difficult for the relatives, but it cannot avoid discussing sensitive aspects again. Uh, crime reporter Peter Edevries was shot in the center of Amsterdam in July last year while leaving a television studio. The murder sent 
The murder sent shockwaves around the country and it was immediately suspected that he was shot because of his involvement in the Mokro Mafia trial in which he uh, is uh, an advisor of uh, one of the key witnesses against uh, drugs criminal Ridwan Tachi. Yeah. Suspected drugs criminal, we should say, because he's uh, oh, still on yeah. trial. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. it's pretty clear that uh, yeah he has a lot of blood on his hands. But yeah, yeah, yeah technically yeah. he is still uh, innocent, of course. Yes, um, and has a very good lawyer. Uh, and yeah, and, and there's some, been some politics news as well. This. Uh, Yes, because uh, former Tweede Kamer chair Kadisha Arip has left parliament without fanfare after serving 24 years as an MP. Arip was uh, at the center of a recent scandal in which she was accused of creating an unsafe working environment in her time as the lower house's chair. Last month, the fact that current chair Vera Bergkamp had opened an investigation into Arip with the unanimous support of the Tweede Kamer's presidium was leaked to NRC and caused an enormous media storm. The highly popular former chair immediately denied the allegations and said she was a victim of a stab in the back by Bergkamp. A day later, Arip announced she would resign as an MP, saying that the lack of support from her own party was one of the main reasons. But until now, no resignation letter was submitted. So, yeah, formally she was still uh, a member of parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, this week it was announced that she did indeed um, uh, file her resignation and usually departing MPs write a letter that is read out in the Tweede Kamer uh, by the current chair but Arip understandably hasn't opted for this uh, tradition <laughs> yes. uh, which, which is uh, terrible news for the popcorn industry definitely so. <laughs> yeah I was really looking forward to this I think a lot of people um, were yeah Ironically, the first person who is offered Arip's vacant seat in parliament is Gijs van Dijk. He resigned this year as well following accusations of unacceptable behavior. But independent investigations have shown that the PvdA leadership mishandled the accusations and shouldn't have asked him to resign. Mm. Yeah, so uh, unhappy times for the uh, for the Labour Party at the moment. Uh. It yeah, but I think they are used to unhappy times for the past uh, <laughs> yeah, seven yeah. years. So, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and also, uh, the Dutch government is poised to make a formal apology for slavery and set up a 200 million fund for projects aimed at raising awareness of the Netherlands' past at, as a slaving nation. Um, in addition, the cabinet will allocate 27 million euros to develop a museum about slavery. In total, nine government ministries are contributing to the project. The apology, which hopefully will not be made in Qatar uh, when the <laughs> cabinet is visiting the World Cup there, uh, has not been officially confirmed, uh, but it will probably be made in mid-December and is a direct response to recommendations made by Home Affairs Ministry commissions last year. Um, There have been several strong hints this year that an apology was in the making uh, and also a majority of MPs have called on the cabinet to do so. And in addition, Prime Minister Mark Rutte said during a short official visit to the former Dutch colony of Suriname in September that the time is right for recognition. In 2023, it will be 150 years since Dutch legislation to abolish slavery was actually enacted. Uh, The Dutch were highly involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, At its height in the 1770s, recent uh, research has shown that slavery generated over 10% of the gross domestic product of the Netherlands. uh, uh, Sorry, of the Holland, I have to say, the Mm. richest of the seven Dutch provinces which made up the Republic. On the subject of people being forced out of their homes, more than 80% of Ukrainians who fled to the Netherlands in the wake of Russia's invasion have found work. The employment insurance agency, UVFE, said it received 46,000 notifications from employers who've taken on Ukrainian staff. 
while the total number of refugees is around 55,000. The actual figure may be slightly lower because some people may have taken on more than one job. Mm, yeah. And um, so who is generally speaking taking on these Ukrainians as an employee? Yeah, there's a big concentration of uh, Ukrainians in Amsterdam and The Hague, and the most popular sector is, uh, unsurprisingly, catering. So Mm. lots of Ukrainians getting jobs in bars, hotels and restaurants. And of course, unlike other refugees, Ukrainians don't have to register to Apple when they arrive. They don't have to sleep on the grass in a tent, uh, and they can start working straight away without a permit uh, under a 12-month exemption that came into force in March which is a pretty stark contrast, really, with the conditions for other refugees in the Netherlands who are barred from working for the first six months and have absolutely no say in where they live. And, um, yeah, there's a huge bottleneck, of course, because municipalities are just blocking all efforts by the asylum minister, Erik van der Berg, to try and find accommodation for them. So it turns out that when you do actually provide uh, for uh, refugees to find accommodation for themselves and uh, don't put any obstacles uh, in the way of them uh, finding work, that they're quite happy to to work and not be... uh, a burden on the taxpayer. Yes, and um, what kind of Ukrainians are working here? Yeah, so NOS uh, spoke to uh, Anastasia, a 26-year-old woman currently working in catering. Before the war, she was an accountant in Odessa, so uh, had a fairly good Mm. job. But then uh, her employers fled the country, so the office shut down, she had no work, and she was worried she had no way of supporting herself or her parents, uh, who were dependent on her. Now, she wanted to join the army, she said, but she uh, she even had weapons training, but she was rejected because of her eyesight. So uh, I thought this case study was interesting because it answers a lot of the questions about, you know, why is it only men coming? Well, it's not. She's a woman. Well, why don't they stay and fight? Well, she wanted to, but she failed the medical and so on. Mm. So she came to the Netherlands uh, and she said herself, I didn't flee from the bombs. Uh, I had to move um, in order to support my parents who are still in Ukraine. And quite a few Ukrainians who live and work in the Netherlands um, are sending money back home. Once you actually have refugees, people are sort of more willing to relate to. There's suddenly the personal stories become more important rather than just looking at the, uh, the numbers of how many are coming and how much they cost suddenly find the whole way that you look at people fleeing war changes. What with the war in Ukraine, natural disasters caused by climate change, Johan Remke is looking for a house on a remote island where Mark Rutter can't phone him, and the woodland rangers in Kelderland needing to stock up on paintball pellets, there are so many worthier causes to give money to right now than this podcast. But that won't stop us from taking two minutes out of every episode to ask for your donations and also say thank you to the generous patrons who do help us to help you stay on top of what's happening in the Netherlands. And it's been quite a busy week, uh, as you might have guessed. It costs as little as a euro, a dollar or a pound a month. And in return, you earn our everlasting gratitude, a shout out on the next podcast, and we will try to answer your questions. We've had one question this week uh, from uh, Luke Watts, who asks, I'm wondering if there is an equivalent to the UK's Private Eye magazine in the Netherlands. It's unlikely I'm proficient enough in Dutch to read it, but uh, that's another matter. Private Eye is kind of a a very well-established satirical magazine that's about well over 50 years old now, and it's always been a print publication. It is online these days, but they were quite uh, late coming to that. But basically, it's a mixture of satirical news stories and uh, quite um, in-depth investigative reporting of... um, issues that um, aren't really being covered by the mainstream media, but often get picked up soon afterwards. So, hmm. Yeah, so influential, an influential magazine, yeah. It is very influential, so all journalists read it. 
basically. Uh It's really interesting, which is quite often why their best stories and their best investigations then later turn up in the rest of the media. The really good example lately was that there was a whole scandal over people who ran post offices were were being taken to court, accused of fraud. It's not unlike the Tuslaken scandal in some ways. And it turned out the software um, was completely hopeless. The software wasn't adding up their their takings correctly. And so it Hmm. looked as if they were taking money out of the tills. And, you know, Uh they were taken to court. They were prosecuted. Some of them were absolutely ruined by it. And it was only after the whole case had been through the court and private eye had done a big investigation that these people were cleared uh, because it turned out the evidence against them just didn't add up, literally. Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, quite a unique magazine, um, uh, if you explain it like that. I don't think we have a Dutch equivalent of that in the same sense, but uh, I I think we have two separate media outlets that sort of join uh, the two functions of Private Eye. Mm. We have, of course, The Spelt, which is a satirical website, and in the weekend they have a uh, a page in the Volkskrant, I believe, that's uh, one of the best satirical um, perhaps the only one I think even in the Netherlands uh, it, but it's surely the best very entertaining uh, yeah. satirical news website you should follow it on, on Twitter or just go to thespelt.nl and the other uh, sort of the, the investigative media outlet that covers a lot of items that are usually not uh, not picked up by 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 regular media is follow the money yes um uh, i think they do excellent investigative work usually when uh, follow the money comes out with an article on the first day it's uh, it's you can read it for free uh, but you can also subscribe of course which is uh, the better option if you want to support their work so yeah, uh, yeah i think these two media outlets um, together sort of uh, cover the functions of uh, Private Eye. Yeah, I think you're right. And like as with Private Eye, quite often uh, stories that start uh, on Follow the Money that start with their investigations then um, get taken up by the mainstream media because all journalists read it. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, their first big scoop was the resignation of Henry Kaiser, the former Fefe ah. uh, Day. Was he Fefe Day? Was he? he, was, he yeah, he was yeah. chair of was the Fefe Day, Day party. Yeah, he quite a big fixer in in Fefe Day circles. Very close to Mark Rutter, and he had to resign because uh, something to do with his funeral homes, wasn't it? He re- he ran a yeah. chain of funeral homes, and there was a big financial scandal, which uh, I will have to look up again because I've forgotten the details. But um, yeah, but I, I'm I'm sure they uh, they uh, they broke that scandal. Yeah. Yes, um, they did. It was I, definitely a follow the money investigation. Um, I'm also yeah. trying to remember the details, but yeah, it's yeah. We covered really it on Dutch it. News at yeah. the time. Henry Kaiser. Uh, we'll, hmm. we'll, we'll we'll stick a link in the line notes uh, so you can read all about it. But uh, it was yes. very entertaining. Uh, it, it was very entertaining. Yeah, yeah but yeah. also also a big story for them. Yeah. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the Dutch News Podcast, uh, go to www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Dutch News NL, or follow the link in uh, the liner notes on the website. The Dutch Railways has announced it will cut the number of services on some of its busiest routes next week, saying that a shortage of personnel has forced the decision. From November 7th, the intercity services between The Hague Central and Amsterdam Central, Rotterdam Central and Utrecht Central, so basically Randstad Central, yeah. and also from Alkmaar to Schagen and Haarlem. That's less Schagen. important, really. Yeah, that's less important. Um, but uh, all of them will be reduced at off-peak times and all day on Friday. Rush hour trains are also being cut on several sprinter routes, uh, including Rotterdam to Dordrecht, Utrecht to Leiden, Ostudem Bos, and also The Hague to Gouda. I always like the fact that the slow trains are called sprinters. Yeah, well, they have a faster top speed, so that's oh, why yeah. they're called sprinters. Yeah. yeah. 
NS's chief financial officer and acting CEO Bert Groenewegen warned last month that the timetable would have to be cut because the company is struggling to fill more than 2,000 vacancies in a total workforce of 20,000. The announcement comes as real passengers organization Rover reported a surge in complaints during October. Rover said in September there were almost 1,750 complaints and that's 60% more than in 2019 and that's the year before the uh, pandemic caused a sharp reduction in the number of trains and passengers. September is usually the busiest month for customer complaints as universities begin and commuters return from their holidays but October brought 2,650 reports in the first 30 days. Yeah, that's the entire month of October, right? No, uh, not 31st. Quite. No, yeah, yeah. No, no, on, on one day, yeah. Yeah. yeah, have you been using the RFEM's calendar to, to, <laughs> to, to measure October? I did, yeah. Yeah, I just denied the existence of, uh, of Halloween. That's, that's my excuse. I think that's a perfectly fair thing to do. Yeah. Many of the complaints were about work on the line uh, that had been poorly communicated to real users. Yeah, there's nothing more terrible than showing up at a train station and then uh, uh, getting notified that you have to travel by substitute bus. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, that's sort the, of terrible the terrible Your day is ruined and can never be recovered. Yeah. 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 And there are fewer trains, so train tickets are getting gaining scarcity value, right? Because people are having to pay more for them. Exactly. Ordinary train users will pay on average 5.5% more for travel next Next year, while the cost of some peak period season tickets will go down by 2.4%. Um, the aim, the state-owned company said, is to make it more attractive for commuters to travel to work by train. At the same time, international tickets will rise 5%, an off-peak season ticket is going up 10%, and first-class tickets will be 7.4% more expensive. Despite the increase, trains remain a cheaper option than cars for commuters because of high petrol prices. And as board member Chulling Smith said, and that was the most outrageous lie ever <laughs> told in the history of the Netherlands. Because it's, it's simply not true. It's, well, it's uh, not true uh, that trains are cheaper than cars? No, not at all. If I go to well, Rosendale by train, I have to pay uh, three euros more for train ticket than the gas prices. So no, it's not even with the current even with the current petrol yes. prices, and even if you just go by yourself in a car. I always thought if you travel in a car as a single person, then it was more expensive nope. than the train. But if you travelled in a group of two or three, it was cheaper. Nope. No, not at all. No. Yeah, okay. but yeah, and and right. th- indeed, as, as you said, if you travel by group, then you have to buy individual train tickets, of course. So yeah, that's yes, yeah, drives the price yeah. up uh, enormously. But no, it's uh, it's not uh, it's not true at all. I think maybe for the short distances, yeah. even though I doubt that as well uh, i think uh, i think uh, the conclusion here is uh, the ns sucks well i have to say i think it sucks less bad in a lot of other countries uh, rail services and uh, one other thing we've had this week uh, that we uh, have, don't really have time to discuss is that the ns has, has rejected plans to privatize the uh, the international trains and the, or the, oh, the yeah. long distance trains uh, and to open up to competition which if you see what's happened in the uk where we've had competition on the rails for about uh, 20 years uh, would be an absolute basket case if uh, if that precedent is anything to go by, so something we will look into. Uh, uh, Maybe we should in the next episode when we have more time. Sports news and the Netherlands have won an international cricket match. Oh wow! Did we? <laughs> yes, congratulations to everyone in the whole country. Um, <laughs> there was party on the streets on every construction site. You saw <laughs> people <exactly>. dancing, <laughs> yeah. dancing the conga. Yeah. Who did we beat? What, what, tell us what. Uh, how did it go? Yeah, you, you beat uh, you beat Zimbabwe ah. at the Super Twelve stage of the T Twenty World Cup. 
which is kind of a short form of cricket, uh, which is doesn't take five days to play, which is a big advantage when you're trying to watch cricket. And it is actually a pretty prestigious uh, tournament. Uh, two teams qualify for the quarterfinals from a group of six, and uh, given that three of those teams are India, South Africa and Pakistan, who are professional test-playing nations, it was always going to be a tall order for the Dutch to uh, get any further. The team had already been eliminated after losing their first three matches to Bangladesh, India and Pakistan. But against Zimbabwe, they found their rhythm. A strong seam bowling performance with Pal von Meekern taking three wickets for 29. Um, meant Zimbabwe were bowled out for 117 um, in the 20th over. And then Max O'Dowd turned on the style with the bat. He scored 52 off 45 balls, including a second wicket partnership of 73 with Tom Cooper to steer the team to a five wicket win with 12 balls to spare. That I'm sure all makes perfect sense and needs no explanation. <laughs> yeah, it all sounds very wicked to me indeed. Captain Scott Edwards described the win as awesome and said it was good to get the ball rolling after a rocky start. And uh, Scott Edwards, as a native Australian, was very pleased, I think, to be winning uh, in Australia, which is where the tournament's being played. Uh, the Dutch have got one more match to play. That's on Sunday against South Africa. Could it be the case that uh, all this trouble on the railroads is actually a conspiracy by the Orange Cricket Lobby? Because uh, be. all these delays and all these uh, time we will be spending on trains, uh, it gives us enough time to finally watch some cricket matches. That uh, to, to learn the rules of cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, yeah. I, I see a conspiracy here. Maybe I should go to Australia and, uh, and talk to uh, David Icke uh, about this. Yeah, I think you should. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's definitely something in this. Or Douglas Adams. He he was big on uh, cricket being the worst sport and in fact one of the worst things in the entire universe. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah, well, I, I have never watched it, so I uh, I have no opinion on the no. matter. But uh, yeah, um, <laughs> speaking of things I do have an opinion about, uh, football. Uh, there was also uh, some bad news uh, uh, relating to that, right? Yeah, some mixed news in football, really, but uh, bad news for Ajax, because they're out of the Champions League. We knew that already because they'd lost home and away to Liverpool and Napoli. They have salvaged some pride with a 3-1 win against uh, Rangers FC in Glasgow. Uh, Steven Berghaus opened the scoring after four minutes. Mohamed Kudus uh, scored a second before half-time, um, and then Rangers pulled back a penalty uh, before Ajax got a third through substitute Francisco Contessao, who I'd never heard of before. <laughs> But uh, well done to him. Uh, manager Alfred Schroeder was in sombre mood. He said his team had got the results they deserved. Uh, but spare a thought for his opposite number, Giovanni van Bronckhorst, because the former Dutch international player and Feyenoord coach presided over the worst set of results in the history of the Champions League group stages. Rangers finished with six games, six defeats and a goal difference of minus 20. It's great that we were able to qualify, but in this group we fell well short, he said. So Ajax now dropped down to the Europa League after Christmas. Uh, they'll be joined by PSV. Uh, PSV had a 1-0 um, win, I think. They'd already qualified. They, they beat Bodo Glimt of Norway 1-0. Fine order also there. They won 1-0 at home against Lazio uh, in Rotterdam, so no danger to any fountains. And uh, <laughs> that means all four teams in their group finished on the same number of points. And uh, it was all down to goal difference. And finally, Azad Alkmaar. They march on in the Conference League <laughs> um, after beating Dnipro one 2-1 to top the group which also contained uh, FC Fadus of Liechtenstein so very good job to them some prestigious victories there for Azad well done to them <laughs> yeah hide your fountains uh, Liechtenstein because uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and there uh, were also some uh, congratulations for Max Verstappen right Yes, uh, Max has been uh, sweeping up everything before him this season, and uh, last weekend he became the first driver to win 14 Grand Prix races in a season. 
Now, he's had more Grand Prix races to do this than uh, his uh, predecessors. Uh, Sebastian Vettel won 13 out of 19 in 2013, and Michael Schumacher won 13 out of 18 Grand Prix back in 2004. So, um, But if Verstappen wins the next two races, the remaining two races, uh, to take it to 16, he will have, I think, the biggest, the best win ratio of any driver yeah, in history. In terms of percentages, so yeah. S- still winning 14 Grand Prix is indeed easy, so it is a remarkable, uh, remarkable achievement. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, we, we, are we going to Qatar uh, for the race, or uh, are we staying uh, at some pl- uh, some nice place? It's in Abu Dhabi, oh. not Qatar. Wow. So the final race. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's kind of a very horses for courses, really, isn't it? Um, then the penultimate race is in Brazil, hmm. which I guess uh, now that uh, Bolsonaro has <laughs> lost the election, maybe is a slightly less reprehensible place to yeah. uh, to go motor racing. Who knows? Uh, Verstappen was also involved in some op-ep after oh, the really? race. Um, he refused. Yeah, well, he refused to speak to British broadcaster Sky Sports mm. because a reporter said on air that Lewis Hamilton had been robbed of the world title last year and uh, uh, turns out Max is a bit sensitive about that and so Red Bull's team boss um, so is Red Bull's team boss Christian Horner who said there were some derogatory comments made so we took a break from Sky for this race Max was upset so yeah yeah and this this reporter kept referring to him as that guy and uh yeah, yeah, I believe he called Lewis Hamilton eight-time world champion or something like that. It was all a, oh, a little right. bit childish, yeah. So but yeah. Just a little bit of kind of a cheap trolling, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's simply undeniable that he won his world championship in a very dubious way uh, last yeah. year. So, um, yeah. It's, yeah, um, but the record did say that he won, so yeah. that's that. Yeah, The, the conspiracies go on. Indeed. As, uh, David Icke will probably <laughs> be mentioning it at some point. We can't seem to have a podcast without uh, a wolf item, but uh, it's not our fault that every week there is more and more ridiculous news surrounding that animal. Because this week the province of Gelderland announced that it would allow tame wolves to be chased away with paintball guns to prevent the animals from getting too close to people and possibly attacking them. The decision comes following the publication of a video in which a seemingly tame wolf is seen walking past a family at close range in the Hoge Veluwe National Park. We talked about that last week. Earlier footage also showed the number of photographers surrounding a wolf in the National Park. An environmental organization, Fauna Bescherming, has accused the Veluwe Park management of feeding the wolves to make them tame so it can be classified as a problem animal, which enables the park (laughs) to remove it. The Veluwe Park owner... Seger Emanuel Baron van Voorst tot Voorst. That's a great name. It's a great name indeed. Yeah, yeah. it's a tremendous name. Uh, yeah. Apparently, we still have nobility here in this country. Um, he denies the allegations, uh, but he has frequently said that the wolves do not have a place in the Netherlands. The provincial authorities have now decided the tame wolf needs to be discouraged from approaching people. We will use paintball guns to do it, a spokesman said. <laughs> the paint marks will show which animal has been shot at. Uh, the distance between <laughs> wolves and people should be at least 30 meters. I'm sure there was a government commission that determined this exact number. Uh, And also park owner Van Voorstot Voorst said he would cooperate with the measure, but said it wouldn't help. It's not a real solution, he said. They just want to avoid saying, kill the wolf. Mm. Wolves are a protected species in the Netherlands and cannot be culled. The use of the paintball guns is within the guidelines for handling tame and potentially problematic wolves, the provincial authorities has said. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, we're going to see uh, a lot of coloured uh, wolves uh, in the near future. Paintballing with wolves. Yeah. We're gonna have rainbow wolves. <laughs> in the, I'm That's gonna really upset Vladimir Putin, isn't it? And probably David Icke as well. 
It'd be pretty to come up with a new conspiracy in which uh, reptiles turn into wolves to disguise themselves in the Netherlands and then get uh, shot out with paintballs to give themselves rainbow stripes. Yeah, and then imagine a chameleon yeah. standing next to uh, these rainbow wolves and uh, <laughs> taking up those yeah. colors. Yeah, that would uh, yeah, yeah that would would cause I think uh, the meltdown of society, <laughs> meltdown yeah. of David Irk, yeah, David Ike, uh, David yeah. Ike, yeah, whatever his name is. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can now also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. I'm David Icke, sorry, uh, Steve <laughs> Irwin, sorry, Gordon Darroch. My thanks to Paul Peters, and we'll be back next week. The Dutch Railways has announced it will cut the number of services on some of its busiest routes next busiest. week. Busiest. 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 Yeah. I'm sorry for English spelling. <laughs> it's okay. No, I we should. We talk about the Dutch apologizing for slavery. We, we should apologize for what we've, what we've done to orthography. <laughs> it's not your fault. Uh, Even so, e I feel English responsible. is a potpourri of Norwegian languages, German languages, and French languages. Yeah, but, so, yeah, but, but, but Samuel Johnson fucked up the spelling. He's entirely yeah. responsible. So we should apologize. I apologize on behalf of the, the whole of British people for Samuel Johnson.